For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is the annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. It's time to light the jack-o'-lantern, turn up the radio, and grab a few pieces of trick-or-treat candy. Because we've got an all-new collection of seasonal stories designed to thrill and chill. Coming up next on the 11th annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. What are some of the secret fears that keep students at the University of Arizona up at night? We'll find out next as some of them answer the question, what's really scary? And share some Halloween memories. We'll start with Anna and Juliana. Is there a really good memory you have of a Halloween from your childhood? I remember being dressed up as a horse. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a good Halloween, but it was a weird one. What might you find in your in your trick-or-treat bag that would really be a treat? And then what do you remember getting that was a trick? A treat? I would say there was like always the house that gave out the full-size candy bars and probably like a three musketeers. Um, a trick? I got like a box of raisins once. <laughs> That was definitely a <laughs> My first name is Robin, and I think cockroaches are scary. They come out of nowhere and they fly. Do bugs in general just freak you out? Not really, just cockroaches. What is something you can think of that if you got it in your trick-or-treat bag, it would truly be a treat? I would say like sour candy. And what would be a real trick? <laughs> a cockroach. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey, and one thing I would say is pretty scary is creepy clowns. Hi, this is Neftali Ortega, and the thing that I find most scary is the test that is coming up in 30 minutes. What uh, subject is this going to be in? Immunology. (laughs) But you could be on the ground floor of protecting humanity against an eventual zombie virus. I'd let the virus from the wild. Wow, that's pretty nihilistic. (laughs) I don't know what to say. You're going into medicine? Sure, yeah, I want to do research eventually, probably developing new viral strains and bacterial strains that actually have more potency. (laughs) So you actually might be the one creating the zombie virus. All right, so can you think of something that's really scary? I'm Abby Purdy, and now I'm afraid of Nefty in the future. My name's Griffin, and I guess something I would think is really scary is state of the environment is pretty scary. Hi, um, my name is Annabelle, and I'm really scared of like paranormal activity because I feel like it can happen anywhere to like anyone, no matter where you're at, you know. And so that kind of like freaks me out. So, are you a believer in paranormal activity? Yeah, I feel like there's like good spirits and like bad spirits, and I believe that like someone can put a bad spirit on you and that can kind of like follow you around. And so that kind of like scares me a little bit because I know that people have like like capability of like doing that. But yeah. I have to point out that you said your name was Annabelle. Oh, like the doll? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I haven't even seen that movie. I'm terrified of horror movies. Like, I refuse to watch them. Uh, I'm Nikki, and uh, I think chemistry is scary. Well, you chose to take it, right? Yeah. Yeah. My bad. Uh, My name's Austin, and I'm scared of clowns. Is it any clown or or any clown? All clowns are basically scary. All clowns, because it's just a weird man in paint. Was there an event that happened to you that you can recall the first time that you realized that clowns were scary? There was like this uh, little festival in my neighborhood and uh, you, t- you ride a train and there was just clowns everywhere and I was like four, I was traumatized. 
just being at home with the lights on and people knocking on the door is bad enough. You never know what you're going to find out there. No. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thank you. When you think of the Old West, places like Tombstone usually come to mind. Many people don't realize that Tombstone's most famous legend continued along a dusty northwestern trail that led to the very heart of Tucson. We'll hear the grisly tale of what happened next from Christopher Conover. Trains roll past the depot in downtown Tucson every day, carrying cargo and passengers across the continent. But few people notice the statues standing next to the tracks. Two Wild West gunfighters, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. The statue is just not an homage to the men who walked away from the gunfight at the OK Corral. It's a memorial to a shooting here on the tracks in Tucson. We escorted Virgil and his wife to the train station with a few others. And uh, when we arrived, I took the shotguns we had brought and stowed them on the train. And then a Wyatt uh, hopped off and I, I arranged for those shotguns to come back to us. And we, uh, we went around and we found Mr. Stillwell lying there on a, a bed of a train, exactly as we had been told he would be. And uh, we, uh, we asked him politely to please stop with all the shooting, mainly by Wyatt asking with the barrel of his uh, rather loud shotgun. That's the way Doc Holliday would remember the night of March 20th, 1882. Today it's Eric Schumacher who played Doc Holliday in the 2017 movie Tombstone Rashomon. He also played Wyatt Earp in the TV documentary series Legends and Lies. Schumacher says it's easy to explain why all these years later the legend of Wyatt and Doc is still so popular. It brought together so many different elements of, uh, you know, of, of outlaws and good guys and bad guys and the gray areas in between. And, and mainly, again, you know, Doc and Wyatt in particular are just huge characters. Of course, a bit of marketing helped. Before his death in 1929, Wyatt Earp was a Hollywood consultant for cowboy westerns. But back to the story of the shooting at the train depot in Tucson. Bob Bozbell, the owner of True West magazine, says the Tucson incident began months before with an assassination attempt on Wyatt's brother, Virgil Earp. And the day before, Morgan Earp was killed in Tombstone by Frank Stillwell, a member of the Cowboys, the gang of men on the other side of the shootout on Fremont Street in Tombstone. Bell says Virgil was taking Morgan's body home to California to be buried. And they had to go through Tucson. And so uh, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, and about six other guys uh, went along as armed guards. And uh, when they got to, to uh, Tucson, they got off the train and immediately saw Frank Stilwell and Ike Clanton in the shadows. And fearing an ambush, they started chasing him. Wyatt caught Stilwell and yelled his brother's name as he pulled the triggers for both barrels of his shotgun, exacting revenge for Morgan's death, and no one seemed to notice. Tucson had just turned on their new gas lights uh, for the downtown area, and so people were shooting all over town. So they had this uh, perfect cover to get away with uh, shooting down Frank Stilwell. 
And then legend says that uh, uh, Doc Holliday and all the others ran up, and they all uh, took turns shooting at the lifeless form of Frank Stillwell. And the next morning, the sheriff of Pima County said that he found uh, the most shot-up man I've ever encountered in my life. After the shooting, Wyatt, Doc, and the rest of the group headed back to Tombstone as wanted men. But it was not an easy trip. Bell says the group had missed its return train. So they walked 11 miles to the uh, Rincon Station, which is about where Wilmot Road is now. And uh, once there, Wyatt flagged down a freight train, and the engineer was not pleased. Back in Tombstone, the group settled their affairs and quickly left town. That began what is known as the Vendetta Ride, tracking down and killing other members of the Cowboys. Parts of this story are well known, but the Tucson connection is not. That bothers Doc Holliday. I would say that is one of the greatest ironies of my unfortunately rather short life. The Frankenstein Monster, Imhotep the Mummy, and Lawrence Talbot the Wolfman. Each has become an indelible part of our Halloween festivities since they first haunted the silver screen in the 1930s and 40s, courtesy of Universal Studios. Those creatures, and many, many more, owe their fearsome appearances to one man, Universal's maestro of monster makeup, Jack Pierce. My guest, Michael F. Blake, became an author and film historian following a long career as an actor and makeup artist. He's written extensively about Lon Chaney, John Ford, and Teddy Roosevelt. But next, he shares some insight into the art of Jack Pierce, starting with a personal connection. My dad was under contract to Universal Studios in 1936 through 39, and as a contract actor, they do all sorts of publicity stuff. So they did a series of photos with Jack Pierce making my dad up to look like a tough guy, putting a putty nose on, a scar on his face, a mustache, changing the hairstyle, brushing up his eyebrows, shading the eyelids. And I discovered these photos in my dad's collection. And my dad said, oh, yeah, this is what it was. And he showed it to me. And this was just as I was starting to get interested in makeup. So, wow. When you look at those old behind-the-scenes photographs, Jack is always easy to spot because you never see him in a jacket and tie. He's wearing a lab coat. He's wearing basically the same kind of mad scientist shirt that he was often doing makeup for for the films. Jack started out like most makeup artists. He started out as an actor. The acting didn't work for him. He wound up going into doing makeup. and He created a niche, so to speak. Well, even if working in makeup wasn't Jack Pierce's initial goal in Hollywood, he ended up being incredibly influential. Oh, absolutely. And he was under contract to Universal for 40 years, from 1928 to 48. He created this monkey makeup for the movie called The Monkey's Paw, where this monkey was supposed to be semi-human, so it was a forerunner of John Chambers' Planet of the Apes makeup. And he did it all with cotton and collodion and facial hair. But probably Jack's most famous makeup, obviously, is the Frankenstein monster. And I think it's one of his best. Before you came, I was all alone. It is bad to be alone. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. 
friend. <laughs> the whole forehead was built up with a cotton and collodion mixture and heavy grease paint and putty eyelids. And Karloff was, was wonderful. He had a great face. And he had a bridge in his mouth, and when he took it out, it created a slight indentation on one side of the cheek. So Jack used that. You know, makeup artists, we look at actors' faces and see what can we use out of that face to help sell the makeup. What amazes me is I've seen photos of Karloff in the chair, and he's smoking. And, I mean, Jack is using stuff that's highly flammable. You know, and, and I remember actors sitting in, in the makeup chair puffing away on a cigarette while you're making them up. Lovely. But here's Jack using all this stuff like acetone and alcohol and stuff. And, I mean, this stuff was all highly flammable. Well, let's talk about another great collaboration between Boris Karloff and Jack Pierce for the movie The Mummy. There are a few publicity photos of Karloff in The Mummy makeup where fans think that he may have actually been asleep after spending so much time in the makeup chair. You shall rest from life, like the setting sun in the west. But you shall dawn anew in the east as the first rays of Amon-Ra dispel the shadow. But what was the secret of the mummy's makeup? How do you think Jack Pierce created that weathered, textured, aged look? Probably a combination of Cairo syrup and lens tissue paper. <laughs> well, now, that's that's fairly low-tech. How do you turn that into such an effective monster makeup? You use a lot of hair dryers to dry it out, and it wrinkles up the skin. And then you cover it with grease paint, powder it heavily, and that's how it was basically done. It was just an old-fashioned way. We can still do it to this day. And then in the 1940s, Jack got a chance to work on Lon Chaney Jr. for a makeup that became absolutely legendary. You killed the wolf. Well, there's no crime in that, is there? The wolf was Balaam. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Bela became a wolf, and you killed him. The wolf man was another wonderful creation of Pierce's makeup. Originally, the snout was built up with... Um, cotton and collodion. Um, they didn't really go into foam rubber until after the war. That didn't really kind of become the norm. And of course, Pierce lays yak hair, and it was yak hair, because yak hair is a lot more coarse, shows up better in some respects on film that way, and especially for that type of character. It was horrible makeup to wear because you got to basically your whole face as an actor is all painted with spiritum, which is the adhesive. And then you have all this hair put on you. And my dad always hated having a beard when he was an actor, having to wear a beard because it was so damn itchy. And um, it was very itchy for Lon Jr. But it was, again, another iconic makeup that has been replicated for years and years and years. One thing a lot of people don't know is Jack was one of the finest beauty makeup artists in the business. And Jane Wyatt told me a story one time. She came into his chair and she was a little kind of nervous and he said, honey, relax. I've been a makeup artist all these years and I can take care of you. And she looks around and all around the walls are pictures of Karloff, Henry Holland, the werewolf of London, which I think is an absolute 
genius of a makeup. And she said, I looked at all the stuff and there's not one picture of Jack making up a woman. But she said he did a marvelous job. He was so wonderful. You can see those photos of Jack Pierce transforming Michael F. Blake's father, Larry Blake, from a handsome actor to an outlaw ruffian on the Haunted Halloween Spotlight page at azpm.org. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of this special Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight <laughs> right after this break if you dare. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Vampires have always had a place in the midnight menagerie of our greatest fears. But sometimes they do seem a little played out. We all know the rules of how they operate, all about the bats and garlic and wooden stakes. But film essayist Chris DeShiel looks back at a film that portrays the vampire as a supernatural threat that defies comprehension. To remind us that what we fear most is the unknowable journey that separates life from death. In the history of vampire films, and indeed of horror films in general, Vampyr, spelled V-A-M-P-Y-R, a 1932 film by the Danish director Carl Theodor Dreyer, holds a unique place. Vampires had not yet become a fixture in the cultural landscape when Dreyer and his co-screenwriter Christian Newell decided to make the movie in 1930. They weren't interested in Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, but were instead inspired by the stories of another Irish author of gothic fiction, Sheridan Le Fanu, two of which provided a very loose framework for their film. Dreyer was an artist of uncompromising vision, and Vampire is not at all like the conventional vampire movie to which we'd grown accustomed. Throughout his life, Dreyer had trouble getting funding for his projects. In this instance, he met a young French aristocrat named Nicolas de Gunsberg, who agreed to finance Vampire on one condition, that he could play the lead role. Using the stage name Julian West, Gunsberg plays Alan Gray, a young man studying demonology and the occult. He becomes so obsessed with these subjects, we are told, 
that he begins to have a hard time telling the difference between reality and fantasy. One day he wanders into a village, takes a room at an inn, and immediately experiences some very weird events. Eventually he gets involved with the family of an aged householder who has two daughters, one of whom is dying after an attack by a vampire. Alan Gray eventually sees the vampire, and it's a very spooky-looking, white-haired old woman. My description makes Vampure sound easily understandable, however, it's anything but. The film's visual style disconnects the viewer from any solid sense of reality. Dreyer uses disjunctive editing so that cuts to other characters or scenes don't match in the way films normally do. There are a lot of remarkable traveling shots in which the camera glides back and forth through hallways and corridors, sometimes very swiftly. After such a moving shot, we often see a character re-emerging in a different part of the frame than expected. The picture presents an essentially subjective experience. Things happen to us without the coherence of an outside observer's point of view. And like the main character, the film makes no distinction between waking life and dreams. The film was shot silent and the sound dubbed in later, which increases the bizarre distancing effect. Even though it is a sound film, the minimal dialogue doesn't convey much significance. Everything is in the camera angles, the striking close-ups, the outdoor shots obscured by fog, and special effects such as double exposures and shadows moving about apparently without anybody casting them. At one point, Gray sees the shadow of a gravedigger, but the movement is backwards, with the earth flying up into the shovel as the grave is undug. The audience is never able to get a firm sense of spatial relationships within the houses and other buildings that the characters inhabit. I've heard some people complain that the movie didn't frighten them. Well, the truth is, it's not really meant to be scary that way. It doesn't use shock effects. The mood would be more accurately described as profoundly unsettling. Vampire is in fact an eccentric, stylized art film about evil and death. In the movie's most famous sequence, Gray sees himself in a coffin, and then from the point of view inside the coffin, with a little window for his face, watches as he is carried away to be buried. It is this idea of being transfixed by evil, helplessly taken to a lonely death, that lies at the heart of the film. Rather than the more sensational effects of fright and terror, Vampure taps into the much deeper dread of our own mortality. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Since its founding in 1902, Bisbee, Arizona has become known as much for its quaint, small-town charm as for its raucous origin as a frontier mining outpost. Andrew Brown wanted to explore this place's very haunted history, so he joined Renee Harper of Old Bisbee Ghost Tours and Magic Kenny of the Bisbee Seance Room as they entertain their visitors with a peek into the darkness. I always tell people that Bisbee was a mining town. We mostly mined copper. Copper is a conductor of electricity. Ghosts are energy. That's why I believe it's an active location. There is almost an electric current here that sometimes I feel. All these buildings are original. They not just hold the charm, they hold a certain energy of, of people that once walked this earth. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me in the Bisbee Seance Room. Bisbee is considered one of the most haunted towns in America, and there is a reason for this. You're well aware of the copper, gold, and silver that were extracted from the mines. What most people do not realize that this entire town was built on top of one of the single largest quartz crystal mineral deposits anywhere in the world. And quartz crystal in large quantities acts as a battery for letting certain energies come and go as they please. Now the Grand is the only hotel where I have heard stories of people running out in the middle of the night never to return because of the paranormal activity. She got scared, went behind the bar to start cleaning glasses when she felt Jeremiah massaging her back. My type of ghost. <laughs> we try to tie in all the stories to the history of the buildings. So we don't just tell ghost stories, we try to kind of link them all together, like a quilt. First spot on our little tour is none other than the Copper Queen. There are 52 rooms, 16 different ghosts. We decided to research this park. And what we found out was that this park used to be very good. This used to be the Bisbee Cemetery. When a lot of people come up to me and they're like, well, how can you prove that there's a ghost? I go, well, how can you prove there's not? I want to leave you with the final thoughts. We are merely spirits having a human experience, not humans having a spiritual experience. And those deceased are always with us. You can see much more about the haunted history of Bisbee by watching the video story on the Haunted Halloween Spotlight page at azpm.org. And now, a final musical offering from the Tucson Ensemble called Nature Curry, who remind us of the things that define this time of year with a song called Every Halloween. On the night it comes around, Brings a pirate, hobo, and clown. Search for candy up the street and down every Halloween. Zombies and werewolves are out to scare. They're here and there, they're everywhere. Don't let them bite you, please beware. Every Halloween. They carry sweets in a jack o' lantern and on the streets in a sinister fashion. Protect your kids, don't let the zombies at them every Halloween. The witches sing, it's Halloween. The witches fly into our dreams. The witches haunt us with their screams every Halloween. Toilet paper in the trees. No more mischief round here, please. We fear the haunting of the teens every Halloween. Children paint their face and wail. Their older brothers may go to jail for causing mischief over hill and dale. Every Halloween, costume parties are a place to dine. We're witches pious with their evil wine, so we'll behave like fools and swine. Every Halloween, the witches sing it's Halloween. Witches sail into our dreams. Witches scare us with their screams. 
every Halloween. Here comes a Viking, his sword is drawn. I fear that he intends me harm. My legs will run till I'm long gone. Every Halloween. Little Peggy and Lula Bell. Well, they intend to cast a spell. That their trick or treat goes well. Thank you for listening to the 11th annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. On behalf of production engineer Jim Blackwood, plus Ashley Freedy, Christopher Conover, Eric Schumacher, Bob Bowes-Bell, Michael F. Blake, Chris DeShiel, Andrew Brown, Magic Kenny, Renee, the ghost hostess with the mostess, and the band Nature Curry, plus the spirit of Jack Pierce and all things that go bump in the Tucson night, I'm wishing everyone a very safe and extremely scary Halloween season. (laughs) Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.